my name is Marianne Williams. I'm a specialist gastroenterology dietitian and welcome to the first in our clinical cases podcast series. So I called Lou and she came in to see this kind of wreck on the bathroom floor. Um, I just said to her, I said, this has got to stop. You know, this can't happen to me, not as a grown up, you know. But before we listen to this very interesting case study, just want to give you a little bit of a background as to why we have decided to set up this podcast series. Several years ago, in fact, um, almost exactly 10 years ago, an excellent textbook came out, which was called Clinical Cases. And even as a slow reader, I devoured that book in less than 24 hours. The cases covered real life examples from over 70 patients, looking at conditions as diverse as head injury, liver disease, stroke patients, diabetes, they had ulcerative colitis, they had breast cancer, pancreatitis, and the list just went on. Um, They were fantastic learning tools for myself as a healthcare professional. But technology's actually moved on in leaps and bounds since that book was published back in 2008. And with the advent of podcasts, it seemed a bit of a no-brainer, really, to set up a podcast series of clinical cases. I thought it would be fascinating to hear patients tell their own stories and their journey into finding a solution for their health issues. Each case will be a patient who has been treated by a healthcare professional and who has agreed to tell their story to help clinicians learn. In essence, I guess you'd say it's continuous professional development by podcast. I hope you enjoy this first episode and this was a really particularly interesting case and perhaps a lesson on how to look beyond blood tests and I guess my question to you would be does this patient have celiac disease or not? Alan thank you very much for joining me today. That's What I'd like to do is take you uh, take you right back to when you were a child and what's your first memories of the symptoms you had? What were the symptoms you were getting? Well, as a child, I went through various kind of reactions and it was always my gut, you know, so I had, uh, I was treated for severe constipation at one stage as a child. Um, and also my sister to this day thinks I was avoiding the washing up <laughs> after Sunday dinner or whatever, because I'd have to go straight to the loo. My food always seemed to go straight through me. And was that sort of pretty much the standard, not just obviously on Sundays, did you find most times when you had an evening meal, you were straight onto the loo? Yeah. Did you get pain and things um, like that as I well? I did. I tended to get um, a kind of stitch down my left-hand side. Um, so I'd get a stitch in my left-hand side, I'd get um, gurgling in my tummy, you know, and it just, everything just felt quite liquid and fluid. And then I'd get to a point where I knew I'd have to run. I knew I couldn't walk to the loo, I'd run to the loo. There was no holding it. There was no holding it, and uh, they just felt as if there was an awful lot of pressure. And this was, what sort of age do you remember this being? Um, Or how young were you, do you remember? I suppose the constipation, I'm trying to remember the house that I lived in with my parents. So I remember being treated for constipation and having severe diarrhoea at different times. um, When I was 8, 9, 10, 11, that kind of age. And then 13, 14, 15, I remember the kind of the, the Sunday washing up issue being a little bit more prominent and me feeling quite ill mm. you know quite mm. ill with my tummy and and again I can remember being out for out for dinner with mum and dad as a family you know and feeling really ill afterwards I remember lying on the sofa you know on a Sunday afternoon having come back from a lovely day with the family thinking oh, I feel really awful but I actually just thought 
everybody reacted to food that way. You know, mm. you just think, well, maybe everyone's the same, and they're just better at hiding it. When you didn't it. eat, were you not getting any of these symptoms? So if you just had a day when you didn't eat much, did you find you felt a lot better? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So by not eating or eating really simply, um, that seemed to be a little bit better. Mm. Um, and and different, different meals. You know, mum mom had a kind of a standard approach. You know, she had three kids and my dad worked re really long hours, you know, when we were young, as happened back then. So, you know, we, had, we knew what we were having for dinner most days. We, you know, we'd have a roast on a Sunday and leftovers on a Monday. We'd have something else on a Tuesday and leftovers on a Wednesday. And, you know, so we knew what we were having. And I knew on a Wednesday, mum used to make this meal. She won't thank me for saying it, which was mince with rice. And that was okay. Interesting. You and know? you always, till you knew and on a Wednesday, knew. you were Wednesdays not going to have to and rush And probably Thursdays, because sometimes mm. we'd have leftovers. And that was all right. Yeah. You wouldn't make it nowadays, you know, the flavour wasn't great and that kind of thing, but <laughs> mince and rice. I hope she's not listening to this. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. Um, yeah. But it's, but I remember that meal particularly was one that I really enjoyed. And I suppose it was a bit of reverse thought process that I could enjoy a meal when I knew it wasn't going to impact on me too much. Were there particularly meals that you always associated with having a major problem at home? Uh, not off the top of my head. But I know that there were certain things in chicken, you know, roast chicken seems to... Mm. I just associate certain mm. things with roast chicken. But, you know, we used to have Sunday lunch and mum always made a magnificent kind of blackberry and apple crumble afterwards. Mm. And we'd have that with ice cream. And quite often that might tip me over the edge, you know. So the roast chicken may be a bit of a red herring yeah. in the sense that there was a lot of other things going on with that roast meal. Yeah. Including gravy including the crumble yeah so all of that yeah. stuff mm. and you know the if we had ice cream with the crumble all of that kind of just built this it built up and i could feel it halfway through the dinner i'd know what was going to happen you know so quite quick quite quick yeah so during the dinner you're already feeling your stomach on the way yeah. so you're you were telling me before that as a teenager your stools were really quite loose by this point you were generally having bristol stool scales sort of six to seven which is the very end yeah. of the scale so quite watery stools, was that what you were having generally day to day? Pretty, pretty much, yeah. Okay, and then you went on into sort of early adulthood, um, and I gather your stools sort of got a bit better, but then you started having these bizarre sort of attacks. Um, the, yeah, I did get a bit better, I think, you know, and sometimes it's hard, I got comparatively better. So, you mm. know, compared to what I was, I think things settled down for a while. Maybe it was the kind of diet I was having I was having at the time. Maybe my diet was slightly healthier than it was when I was a teenager. I'm, I can't quite put my finger on it. But then I developed from the age, you know, from my early 20s, I suppose, I started having these attacks of what I always put down to being food poisoning. Take me through one of these attacks. What were they like? So a food poisoning attack would be um, come on quite slowly. So I'd end up having this sense of nausea. Mm -hmm. and this how long would that go on for a, an hour or two mm. hours you know the nausea would be there and there'd be an uncertainty as to whether i'd need to sit on the loo or stand mm. over the loo okay know, so i didn't know okay. which way the food yeah. was going to go yeah. up or down and um i'd get a, a slight breathlessness because my my body was deciding what to do mm. you know and, mm. and you know you, you can almost feel the wall of your stomach ready to just push everything mm. out so i can remember on a few occasions when my older boys now were babies and my wife at the time when she was out I had an attack one night and it came on really quite quickly and my whole dinner came up and then whatever I'd eaten during the day came, came down mm. um, and really really sick I get a high temperature with it um, quite shivery quite cold 
And I always put that down to food poisoning. Mm. And um, were any of the other family coming down with the food no, poisoning? which was always quite mm. baffling, mm. you know. So you'd be the only one? Isolated. You repeatedly. Know, and repeatedly. this would happen, how often was this happening? Um, I suppose to start with, maybe once, twice a year, and then it was up to three, four, five times a year. Okay, so you got every couple of months. Yeah. So what age were you by the time it was happening every couple of months? Um, I suppose I was early 40s. Okay, and you were... I remember you saying you sort of almost in convulsions on the bathroom floor. Yeah, that was the that was the point at which um, I knew that I needed to do, to do something. Mm. Um, and you know, it's it's never easy to talk about it. But I went to bed one night feeling fairly ill, and then had had an issue in bed without saying any more. Mm. Couldn't get out of bed quick enough. Oh, um, bless you. And that was that was horrible. You know, it, it was mm. it's a horrible thing to happen to an adult. So that was fine. You know, we dealt with that. Louise was with me at the time and she was she was amazing in kind of just supporting me and not making it as embarrassing as it could be. Um, and then I made it to the bathroom. I, I vomited and had diarrhea pretty much at the same time, oh, you know. So mm, mm. I was sitting on the loo and vomiting on my feet and then I kind of, I was shaking with the cold and then I, I fell off fell off the toilet onto the floor and I couldn't stand up. So I called Lou and she came in to see this kind of wreck on the bathroom floor. Um, and I just said to her, I said, this has got to stop. You know, mm. this can't, you know, I, I felt like a baby. I felt like a child, helpless child on the bathroom floor. And I just said to her, this needs to stop. This shouldn't be happening to me, not as a grown up, you know, and, and without any help. So that was the point at which I needed to go to the doctor. I'd lost quite a bit of weight at that stage as well. Mm. How much weight had you lost? Well, I, I sit comfortably between 11 and 11 and a half stone. That's my mm. kind of fighting weight, as you call it. Mm. Um, and I was, by the time I went to the doctor, I think I was down to about 10 stone. Okay. And that's, you know, I'm not a big person. Mm. And mm. I was quite gaunt. And I remember people were kind of, people would ask you, how oh, you are, you've lost a bit of weight, blah, blah, blah. And I say to people now, you know that you look terrible when people stop asking you how you are because they yeah. presume that there's something chronic wrong. So people had stopped saying, how are you? Um, I wasn't getting as much sleep as I'd like to because I wasn't eating as much as I want. I wasn't exercising, so I didn't look Were you feeling, healthy. by this point, were you feeling ill every day? Yeah. yeah so I this was, now was not every two months. I mean, the big attacks the were attacks once every were, two months, but, but generally day to day, what were you feeling like? Life was cloudy. You know, it wasn't... Um, it was just hard. Every day was hard. You know, it was waking up tired in the mornings and really struggling just to have the energy, the motivation to do things. And I used to do an awful lot of running. I used to do a lot of training. You know, I'm busy with the kids and I just didn't have the energy for it. Didn't have the enthusiasm. You know, Lou would say, should we go on a holiday? Should we go out with the boys for the weekend? And I was like, oh, I don't really want to, you know, like, can we just stay at home? I'm really tired. And so my kind of, my what I thought were simple symptoms were having a much wider impact on other people's lives and I realised mm. and I was mm. just becoming a bit miserable. So your quality of life yeah. was being majorly affected and not with just, family. Not and just for me but for mm. Louise and the kids as well because I didn't have, you know, I didn't have a spark at all mm. and my whole life was dominated around the toilet, mm. you know, making mm. sure that I could go. But it, it went beyond that to be honest. It was It was quite... It was quite depressing to be like that, you know, and I was I was skinny and cold and no energy. And that really upset me because I'm mm. I'm generally full of energy and full of like passion for life. 
and I just didn't have it. And I remember you saying the lack of energy was just as if you were walking through treacle. Yeah. It was so hard to actually get up and go get and up, do anything. Get out, do anything. But also the mental side of it. You know, you, I just felt blunted. Mm. You know, you didn't mm. have the sharp edge in meetings mm. or when you're asked mm. questions. Didn't have that ability to respond to things. As so foggy headedness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so the other symptoms you start to get, um, you, you mentioned that you start to get the really nasty rash. Yeah, I got sores on my elbows. I'll never forget, you mm. know, putting my elbows on a table and going, mm. oh, that's sore. Was it and itchy as well? It was quite itchy and to the mm. point of bleeding. So mm. my elbows, the, on my coccyx, surprisingly, mm. that was the itchiest place. And I'd wake mm. up at night scratching while I was asleep, mm. bleeding from my coccyx because it was so itchy. Yeah. Um, elbows and slightly on the backs of my knees at times yeah you know that never got that bad on the backs of my knees but my elbows were bad to the point i couldn't put them on the table mm. you know to lean on the table they'd get really sore um and the other symptom that was really restrictive for me was my hands i got what i thought was arthritis mm. developing mm. i you know i've used chainsaws and climbed trees for years and i don't do as much physical activity as i used to work-wise but i just thought that's not on So I yeah. went to the doctor and I said, I think I've got early onset mm. of arthritis mm. in my hands. Mm. Took a blood test and said, no, nothing wrong. That's that's a shame. Mm. Not a shame, it, yes, but I but wanted why? some, some mm. kind of diagnosis. Mm. So there was nothing wrong after the bloods for the arthritis. And you said you had back pain as well. You yeah, back pain. yeah. so I, I suffered a lot with lower back pain, which thankfully I don't have anymore. And anxiety levels, you mentioned anxiety. Was that just because you're constantly moving from one place to the other thinking I need to be near a loo? I don't know what's going to happen from one minute to the next. It, or was there a different type of level of anxiety I think, going on? I think it was partly that. And you, you end up developing a, a habit of feeling anxious because you don't know where to go. But also you you withdraw from people a little bit because you can't commit to going out with friends. You can't commit to having a proper social life or things like that because you just feel awful. You know, You don't feel like doing things. And also you don't want to... Um, you don't want to go around to people's houses. I remember going to people's houses and you know having to use the loo in the middle of dinner, or just after dinner, and that's kind of embarrassing as well. You know, just going to nip to the gents and you're up there for 15 minutes, and that's that's kind of embarrassing. Developing a relationship with someone new in your life wasn't easy. You know, it put quite a it put quite a restriction on my life. You know developing a relationship with Louise and, you know, staying over at her house or her, her coming to stay at mine. You know, my flatulence, bad wind was terrible, you know, mm -hmm. and it was just really hard to control. So you, you're just better off on your own. You and that's know? something I think a lot of people don't understand unless they've had those sort yeah. of gut symptoms. That level of wind. I came up with coping mechanisms, you know, you leave, leave the room, I'll mm. go and put on. Mm. Back, back in mm. a minute. Goes yeah. up and down like a yo-yo. <laughs> you know, we, we'd watch a film in ten minutes intervals. You know, because <laughs> I'll be back in a minute. Can I get you anything from the kitchen, love? Can I do this? And you know, don't go in the kitchen. <laughs> um, so all of those things build up to kind of, and just talking about it now, it just builds up to it totally taking over your life and dominant dominating everything. Mm. So I was really worried. You know, I thought I my head was going down like all sorts of. And you'd lost roots. weight and you lost were feeling so rubbish. And, you, yeah. you presume you have cancer in there somewhere. Yeah, your you know, appetite's not great. Yeah. Yeah. I went to see my GP after mm. 
after Lou picked me up off the bathroom floor, I, I, I said to her, that's enough. And then I spoke to my GP on the phone uh, the next day. So he sent me for the VT colonoscopy to make sure that everything was okay and everything looked looked okay in there. Um, and so that, that was where they, they pumped me full of gas. You know, that mm. I, I drank mm. that amazing fluid. And that mm. was the first time, do you know, in mm. ages that I felt okay. That's interesting. So actually the prep they gave the you to clear out your bowel. was amazing. You yeah. felt the best you'd felt for ages. Yeah, and I know, you know, they warn you when they send it to you through the post. So this stuff turns up on your doorstep and it says drink it. You will be on the loo for a day. And it would clean your system out. And even sitting here talking to you now, I remember thinking, this feels great. <laughs> you know, at least yeah. I know what's going to happen. Mm. And my system was clear. And after the procedure, they give you a couple of biscuits and a cup of tea. I didn't want to eat. Mm. I just thought, this is great. I mm. feel really good. Mm. My stomach's empty. My bowel is empty. There's no threat of anything happening. And I knew the minute I put anything back into me, I'd be back into that cycle of, wind and diarrhea and all of that again and the irony was they were giving you a biscuit biscuits yeah but i didn't eat it <laughs> um so after after that then my gp said okay those tests are okay um, and i said it would be interesting to talk to a dietitian because it must be something to do with my diet so he sent me to see a dietitian um in salisbury and she was really good she put me on the white diet mm -hmm. which from memory is white rice white bread so low fiber basically low fiber mm. um that didn't really help Mm. It didn't really help mm. at all. Uh, it simplified my diet, which was quite good. Mm. But um, you were still getting all the symptoms. Yeah, still getting the symptoms. So I think I, that was a three-month diet I was on, which you know was pasta heavy and bread heavy, and all the symptoms were there. And I wasn't getting, I wasn't getting much better. A couple of things did settle down, um, but not, mm. not considerably. Mm. So you enough. were still getting very loose stools. You were still, yeah. you, you still got your rash. You still got the joint pains. Yeah. Uh, you still got you're walking through treacle uh, you're still rushing to the loo yeah all of that stuff all was the still urgency there. still there but okay. i think psychologically because i felt somebody was mm. listening mm. somebody was out there that was you know worried about my case that really helped thinking that i was on a i was on a path to hopefully identifying something that was wrong mm. um so that was back to see her after three or four months and she um she put me on the FODMAP diet. Okay, the low FODMAP diet, that's a diet that's used for irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. And it's actually now on the NICE guidelines um, for irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. And for, for people with functional symptoms, you know, the wind and the bloating and the urgency and things, of course, it would make logical sense yeah. to put you on that. Now, the interesting thing about the FODMAP diet, of course, is you're taking out foods that ferment in the gut and can cause the symptoms very similar to what you had. And one of the foods that ferments in the gut is wheat. Yeah. So uh, it comes out of the diet on a FODMAP diet. You take out wheat, barley and rye, not because of the gluten, but purely because wheat, barley and rye have fructans in, which ferment. So part of the FODMAP diet is the removal of wheat, barley and rye because of the fructans. So you went on this FODMAP diet, which basically took wheat, barley and rye out. And what happened when you went on it? Um, I started feeling better. Mm. Louise noticed it. It just in my approach to the day-to-day, -day, my approach mm. to dinners, looking forward to food, you know, mm. looking forward to eating so something. So your appetite started to come back. Appetite was coming mm. back. We developed, I suppose not that early on, but developed, you know, quite a nice variety of, of foods you can eat. And actually the guidance available is really useful, mm. you know, to have a look mm. at. Mm. Um, so the FODMAP diet made a massive improvement. So what happened when you were on the FODMAP diet, what happened to your rash? Um, 
my rash started fading away mm-hmm. um, and my joint pain joint pain disappeared now that's interesting now, so your joint pain just went it was the joint pain that was really yeah. noticeable yeah. you know my hands just suddenly were didn't fine and I'm sitting yeah. and talking to you with my elbows on the, mm-hmm. on the edge of the chair mm-hmm. you know rash mm-hmm. disappeared and I just thought this was fantastic you know, so it really, it really helped the FODMAP diet. It was, it was mm. a brilliant mm. diet to be on. And you said you were about 60 to 70% better on the FODMAP yeah. diet. So there were obviously still issues. I think, remind, correct me if I'm wrong, you said you were still getting loose-ish stools. You're yeah. still having sort of Bristol soil scale 5 to 7, still a bit erratic, but you had more control. They were still urgent. Yeah, because when I was on the FODMAP diet, you can have oats on the FODMAP mm. diet. Mm. Um, my life revolved around oats, so I could get energy from oats and... On the FODMAP diet, you don't need to buy the gluten-free mm. oats. Mm. So I was living on oats. You know, they were in flapjacks, in granola that we'd make at home, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and it wasn't until I went on the gluten-free oats that I really saw my energy levels come up properly mm. and things get that little bit better, make the difference mm. between 60 to 70% and 80 or 90%. And that's interesting because if you think about the amount of exposure to wheat that you're getting with ordinary oats, is so minuscule. Yeah. You know, you're talking about cross-contamination in the processing at the mill where the oats are getting cross-contaminated with wheat flour. But we're talking about small amounts. We're not talking about you eating a cake. Yeah. We're talking about the tiny amounts that appear on the oats. And that, I think, is really important to remember, that that is enough for celiacs to really respond. So when you came to see me, we knew that you were going the right direction. Yeah. And the question then was to look more back at that history as childhood and as a teenager. But the really important thing, which, correct me if I'm wrong, had anybody asked you about your family history at this point? So my father is a great lover of cakes, and the poor man retired at the age of 60, and within two years was diagnosed celiac. Oh, bless him. Um, Poor dad's gone through all sorts of uh, issues since he's retired, but celiac disease was the icing on the cake, so to speak. Um... And so dad was diagnosed celiac, which really helped. But I remember for years, and I've said mom, to mum since, you know, dad's rash on his elbows, had a terrible rash on his elbows. For years he did. You know, it used to come and go and flare up. And, you know, I remember him rubbing cortisone cream. And so all long sorts before his it. diagnosis. Oh, long before mm. it, yeah. Um, and dad always suffered with kind of bowel issues. You yeah. know, and he was either yeah. constipated or he was on the run, at the yeah. runs, at the runs as he calls them. Yeah. Um, you know, and he was he was on and off, but never kind of put his finger on it. And so then he had the blood test. So dad was diagnosed celiac. So this is the male side of the family. Now, in the last 10 or 15 years, his brother mm-hmm. has been diagnosed celiac. Noel, his brother, went for a blood test. That came back negative and then went in as... Uh, went in for a biopsy and was diagnosed on the back of that. So he was negative at blood test and had to go for a biopsy because the symptoms were just so clear. So yeah. somebody obviously was you know, switched on not to go, hang on, this doesn't make sense, and sent him for a biopsy. Yeah. And at which point he came he back positive. He was diagnosed. Okay. Um, yeah, how old was he then? Noel. Dad, so dad was diagnosed around 62, I think, and Noel must have been diagnosed when he was 65, 66. Okay. You know, my, my father mm. is now 78, mm. so that's, that's quite a while ago. Noel is very good at managing his celiac diet. Mm-hmm. My father mm-hmm. less so. You know, Dad's parents, mm-hmm. that side of the family, there's a lot of celiacs in that side right. of the family. There's a couple yeah. of female celiacs on that side mm-hmm. as well, um, mm-hmm. but it's very strong in that mm-hmm. in that side mm-hmm. of the family. 
And the irony is that they were bakers as well. Oh, they were bakers years yeah. ago. They um, must have been ill constantly. Yes, yeah, I would think so. But uh, you know, it's very, very strong in that side of the family. So the uh, when do you remember with the were blood tests at all at any point for celiac disease? I was. So I, it was during the FODMAP session. I think I was blood tested for it. And of course, you can't be blood tested for celiac disease when you're already taking gluten out of yeah. your diet. You have to be eating gluten. You know, every day for at least two to six weeks, yeah. really six weeks, to make sure you get a proper result. So you went along and had a blood test. Uh, you've got a history in the family of, of seronegative blood tests. You know, in other words, that they've got celiac disease, but it's not coming up on the blood test. Yeah. Plus, you were then blood tested when you were already on a gluten-free diet. Yeah. And I think that's something really important for for the health professionals to, to remember, is that people must be eating gluten. There's absolutely yeah. no point whatsoever in testing them. Or even biopsying them, uh, if they. Well, I think that's what happened diet. with my biopsy as well, because my. I was on a complete celiac diet. That's where that's where my conversations with you got me was testing the celiac behaviour, I suppose, of my of my system, where I got to the point. I was, I was getting better on the FODMAP, but actually until I sorted the cross-contamination out down to the different butter dishes in, in, you know, in the fridge at home, different breadboards for making toast, different toaster, all of that stuff we tested, and that's what made the difference. Mm. That's what got me to where I am now, I think. Mm. You know, it made mm. a massive difference. And how much better do you feel now compared with how you felt three years ago? Oh, unbelievably so. You know, mm. 100% better. Mm. Uh, I'm back you know I feel 10 years younger and I'm not just saying that you know I've got energy I've got a passion for life I still need to be careful I still need to be careful my I think people forget how much trauma your stomach goes through and my guts went through an awful lot of trauma and I think they're possibly still recovering I don't know it can take you know two years for your guts to really heal properly so now with a very strict celiac diet how long have you been on it 18 months nearly two years I think okay Um, and we're getting there we are really getting there but you're probably still going to be prone to functional symptoms yeah and and I am and I think that what I, I this FODMAP diet was amazing because it educated me on what I react to what I don't react to and I have had to put elements of the FODMAP diet into my day-to-day and marry that with the celiac diet so that my guts can cope. And I've been left with a hangover of not being able to eat much in the onion family. Mm. You know, can't eat, can't put onions in cooking, leeks, anything like that, garlic, I'm really sensitive to. So I need to be quite careful with that. And, you know, onions are really complex to digest and I just can't do it at the moment. Mm. Maybe that mm. would get better in time and I get better at that, but... I just can't do it. I think it often does, in my experience, and this is anecdotal, obviously just based on on the the patients I've seen, is that slowly over time, you might never be able to sit down and have onion soup. (laughs) That would be asking a lot of any of us, actually. And at the end of the day, FODMAP patients uh, have symptoms, gut symptoms, almost identical to you, but what they don't have is the other things. So tell me, what's the rash like now? The rash is gone. The rash is gone. You've not had any episodes of the rash at all. So No. no... coccyx itching no elbow itching Lou used to call me a bear because mm. my skin was alive it was mm. just itchy mm. all the time this is before you were on before. the c diet yeah mm. and while i was on the fodmap diet i still had itchy skin mm. but not as not as bad but it was almost hot with wanting to be scratched all the time mm. and to the point of making myself bleed 
I was always scratching my back on the door frame at home mm, or something mm. like that or just sit in front of Louise and she'd scratch my back mm. and I'd want it to be proper scratching mm, mm. Um, and nothing would calm it down mm. nothing would calm the itch and that would disturb your sleep but that's all gone now so you don't get that at all don't get it no and what about the arthritis symptoms gone. so none all no gone. hand problems at no, all strength I've got 100% strength back in my hand you know and I, I couldn't use and as you know as a tree climber you have to be able to grip ropes I had mm. to stop tree climbing and I mm. just thought this is it you know I'm in my 40s this is what happens and you were doing triathlons before weren't you yeah. and you had to stop those stopped all, stopped all of that and what about are you back to running I'm and... back running you know mm. I went out last night I ran I had a lovely run last night in the dark around the estate and I did 12 kilometers really enjoyed it and yeah. would you have been able to do that a year no ago chance. no chance no chance not at all that's I mean that's amazing and what about the walking through treacle feeling that's that's gone you know it's I, I am a different person you know it has transformed my life going through I know it took ages the diagnosis but actually knowing where I am now it has turned my life around again well thank you very much Alan I'm really really grateful to you I think absolutely fantastic um, uh, recounting of your experience and I really hope people learn from it and I'm very well, I grateful hope, I hope it helps people because it's mm. it's important mm. well thank you very much you're welcome so I have to say a huge thank you to Alan for being so uh, down to earth and honest about his experiences right the way from childhood and when I look at what we've really learnt from this case I think there are several things we've learnt really really look at the early history of the patient there were already signs when he was a young child and a teenager but probably the most important aspect is to look at that family history. For him, it was a bit of a no-brainer. I mean, almost every male member on one side of the family, going back several generations, was celiac. And then, of course, there's looking at the fact that actually for each patient, there may be a case for doing two different diets. In Alan's case, he discovered the FODMAP diet through the dietitian that helped him. And that actually got him sort of 60-70% better because that diet happens to take out wheat, barley and rye. But we need to remember that also a lot of these patients have functional symptoms as well, IBS-type symptoms on top of that. So, in fact, he runs the celiac diet alongside the FODMAP diet pretty constantly. And it may be that with time he becomes more tolerant to some of the, the FODMAP foods. Obviously, he's never going to be able to reintroduce the, the gluten foods. Um, and I also really took from what he said about the fact that symptoms can be different in different celiacs. You know, his father's uh, symptoms were very different to his, um, his uncle's symptoms. He could have almost no gluten without having a major reaction, whereas his father could get away with a certain amount and not see a huge reaction at all. And there's also that genetic history. Both of those men were diagnosed late in life. And I think we need to remember that, that a lot of celiacs are now being picked up later in life. And also that his uncle had negative bloods. Now, that's really important because I often see patients who have negative bloods but appear to have all the symptoms of celiac disease. And we, we don't know for sure why that is. We know that in some cases there's an IgA deficiency, but that's not always the case. So it's really important that we don't just disregard a patient's symptoms purely because their blood tests were negative. Anyway, again, thank you very much to Alan and uh, thank you everybody for listening and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and we'll listen to any future ones that we produce.
Thank you. Goodbye. That was the first in the Clinical Cases podcast series. If you have a patient who you feel would be a good learning example for healthcare professionals, then please do email us on patient.podcasts at nhs.net. That's patient.podcasts at nhs.net. We look forward to hearing from you.